Good morning. Good morning, everybody. And, and again, welcome to the Sunday morning gathering of Redemption Hill Church. Go ahead and take your Bibles out if you would. And open them up to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. That's where, that's where we'll be today as we continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount that we've entitled Gospel Cardiology. Let me, let me pray for our time together before we begin. Lord, I'm asking for your help, especially this morning, because it's, it's going to be hard for many of us to listen. Storms came. You know, some of us have trees on our house and that sort of thing. It's going to be hard. I pray for any of us who, who maybe have lost loved ones in, in, in these things or have had loved ones hurt. I pray that you would, you would heal our hearts as needed, and you still somehow would do this miracle where you open our hearts to be able to hear you and listen. Uh, because the most urgent thing right now really is what you're going to say to us and what you want to accomplish in our hearts. So only you can do that. I feel really inadequate to, to make any of that happen, so I'm, I'm just asking you to help. And I ask that in your name, Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Let me read Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20. And by the way, when you, hear, when you hear me say the phrase in this text, the law or the prophets, that's just an old you know, Jewish way of talking about their Bible, what you and I know as the Old Testament. So... Verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, help us again as we, as we think through what you just said, what it means, and how it applies to our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray again. Amen. Amen. Now, some of you know this. Some of you know that my parents are from Jamaica. Well, so are a lot of my other relatives and, and many of my closest friends, including my former college roommate, Andre. Now, when Andre was getting married back in January of 2006, Heather and I were engaged at that time. And so he invited both of us to come down to Jamaica and spend some time with him and with his wife-to-be, Raquel, before they got married. And even after they got married, they postponed their honeymoon for a little bit so that we could join them in Ocho Rios and, and witness to some of his friends, which I thought was amazing and on, on many levels. It was, it was great to go up there and hang out with Heather and, and, and one of my best friends. But here's to make a long story short, there were no direct flights out of Richmond to Jamaica. And so I had to book our flights out of BWI. And, and so what we did was we drove up to Maryland to spend the night with my parents who live there now. And they, they took us to the airport the next morning. And, and for some reason, I don't know why I did this, but after we drove two hours from Richmond up to Maryland, I decided that that would be the time to check and make sure that I had packed my passport. All right, Heather, where's Heather? She remembers this vividly. She was coming down the stairs, actually, in my parents' house when she saw that look on my face. It didn't take long for me to realize that I had left that thing in Richmond. And it was really late at night. We had an early flight. So I was either going to drive four hours round trip back to Richmond to get it or, or pray that another way was possible. And fortunately for me, there actually was another way. It turns out that the Jamaican authorities 
would accept my original birth certificate if I had that. And I could show it to them. And my parents just happened to have it in the house. Deep sigh of relief. All right. But here's the thing. I mentioned that to say this. It dawned on me in that moment that without that passport, the Jamaican authorities probably were not going to let me into the country. And as I thought about that, it really dawned on me even more. If you and I can't so much as enter a country like Jamaica, unless we have what that country requires for entry, then how do we suppose we will enter the kingdom of heaven unless we have what God requires? I mean, think about it. Think about it. You can't so much as get into a little island like Jamaica. Why do we so easily believe that as long as we live the kind of life that we think is acceptable, that God will automatically accept that life as well? No, God has standards and God requires something of us. And if you remember from our passage, Jesus says, I'll tell you what that thing is in one word. Righteousness. Do you see that in verse 20? Look, look again at verse 20 with me. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And when I read that, if you're like me, this happens to you as well, a number of questions come to my mind. Few of them are this. Who were these scribes and Pharisees? What kind of righteousness did they have? Do I or do you have the kind of righteousness that exceeds it? And if not, how, how do we get that? Right, so with the rest of our time, all I want to do is go back through the passage together, uh, answering hopefully these questions along the way. All right? and that, as a matter of fact, let's start with the first question that I mentioned. Who were these scribes and Pharisees? Well, the first thing I want to mention, and, and I won't turn to these references, but make a note of it and look it up on your own uh, when you get home, or, or even now you can, you can look them up. But I'll give you two that are easy to remember. Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 1, and Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. In both of those places, you'll, you'll realize that Jesus identifies the scribes and the Pharisees as two of his most vocal critics. They were always looking to catch him in something so that they could accuse him. And you'll see that in many places throughout the Gospels. And the only other thing that I want to mention about the scribes and the Pharisees today is in the eyes of the people around them, they were the ones who set the bar for everyone else as far as righteousness was concerned. And that's why this statement in verse 20 would have been so shocking to everybody who heard Jesus. What do you mean if, if we don't have righteousness which exceeds theirs, we can't get into the kingdom of heaven? Who can be more righteous than them? It, it would be like Jesus looking at us today and saying, unless your righteousness exceeds uh, that of Mother Teresa, or, you know, for some people, the bald-headed monks, the Dalai Lama, just people that everyone holds up as the standard of morality, right? That's what Jesus is saying. It's a shocking statement. They didn't think anyone could be more righteous than these guys. And the scribes in particular, I, I just was studying this this week, they were held in high esteem among all the people because they knew so much about the Bible. Does that sound familiar? Don't we tend to make a big deal out of people who know a lot about the Bible? Man, my pastor knows a lot about the Bible. Well, that, on a, that and a bus ticket, they say, will get you on a bus, right? 
They made a big deal out of these people. In fact, the scribes were people like us, Robert. They were people who made it their life's work to, to study the Bible, to interpret it for other people, to teach it to them so that they could apply it to their lives. That's what they did. And the people thought that by their wisdom, these guys were just so far elevated above everyone else. And they believed that too. That was probably the bigger problem. In fact, in the Jewish traditions of that day, if you read the Talmud or the Mishnah, these are the rabbinical writings that the people held up and began to elevate even above the standard of God's word as the truth. Here's some of the things that you'll find in those traditions. This is from a guy named Alfred Edersheim. He wrote a book called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. In chapter 8, here's what he has to say about the scribes. Now, in trying to picture to ourselves New Testament scenes, the figure most prominent next to those of the chief actors is that of the scribe. There seems to be no measure of his dignity, nor yet limit to his importance. His order constitutes the ultimate authority on all questions of faith and practice. His honor is to be great in the future world as well. Each scribe outweighed all the common people. One scribe outweighs all the common people. One pastor, more important than the whole congregation, right? Wrong. Here it is. Each scribe outweighed all the common people who must accordingly pay him every honor. Nay, they were honored of God himself and their, and their praises proclaimed by the angels. And in heaven also, each of them would hold the same rank and distinction as on earth. Such was to be the respect paid to their teachings and sayings. Now listen to this that they were to be absolutely believed even if they were to declare that to be at the right hand which was truly at the left. So it didn't matter what the Bible said, it didn't matter what God said, if the scribe said something was true, they were to be absolutely believed. If the Pope says it, if the pastor says it, if the preacher says it, if, if the person I think is smart says it, then they are to be believed. No. No, but this was the way the scribes thought about themselves. This is the way the people thought about the scribes. And then that will help us as we read the passage, because now you can kind of see with that in mind why Jesus says some of the things that he says here in verses 17 through 20. Right? For instance, in verse 17, look again. Jesus says, I tell you, or rather, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And, and no doubt, the scribes and the Pharisees, being Jesus' strongest and most vocal opponents, would have been among those responsible for perpetuating these ideas about Christ. This was one of the things being said about him. He doesn't really regard the, vi the Bible very highly. He doesn't have a high view of Scripture. He's teaching other things. He doesn't agree with the elders and the teachers of the law or the, or the scribes. If you have teachers of the law in your Bible, that's the same thing as the scribes. He doesn't, he doesn't, look, he doesn't even wash his hands before he eats sometimes. My, my daughter Brianna had, had fun with that when we read that one in the Bible. Jesus didn't wash his hands, Daddy. Yes, sweetie, but you still need to wash yours, okay? But, but here's, here's what was going on. They, they would actually say these things about Jesus, and now Jesus actually takes some moments to defend himself, so to speak, to, to refute these errors. And, and he says, don't, don't think that way about me. Look, look, and I, let me apply that to us today. Jesus really cares what we think, especially about him. 
And, and the same sort of thing is happening today on another level. And, and no matter what others may say, here's what I want to say to us this morning. Jesus never wants us to confuse for Christianity anything which adopts a low view of the Bible and tries to discredit portions of it or do away with portions of it. Jesus is never the one leading that effort. I know it's becoming very popular to say certain parts of the Bible are, are no longer relevant. We've progressed as people. We, that's not Jesus. That's not the voice of his spirit. Don't let anyone lead you down that path, especially if they're, they're parading themselves as angels of light and saying, oh, that's not really important. What's important is what you do for these people over here. Well, you know, both of those are important to God. And you never have to leave the Bible out or discredit it in order to do things that God approves of. You never have to do that. So stay clear of all that, all right? So Jesus is not leading that effort. In fact, if you want his view of the Bible, you just look at verse 18, where he says this, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. Just, just as a question, has that happened yet? Okay, so I, I just wanted to clear that up. That hasn't happened yet. So what he says remains, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, that's the smallest letter, basically, and not a dot. That means in the Hebrew language, you would have these letters that could only be distinguished from each other by the little curve or the dot at the end. Jesus says, not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the Bible. It's all relevant. It's all important until heaven and earth pass away. Even stuff that legally is no longer binding upon people still shows us truth about God that helps us to relate to him properly. It's all relevant. And watch what Jesus says here. Until heaven and earth pass away, this will not pass away from the Bible. God is sovereign over the preservation of the scriptures. Everyone's casting doubts on, on the scriptures we have today. Are they still good? Are they still valid? It's been copied. It's been translated. It's been transmitted. It's been, I don't throw some other word at me. It's been handled by men. Oh my goodness. God is, God is sovereign over the preservation of the Bible. And so Jesus says, this will remain inerrant, authoritative, and supremely relevant for as long as heaven and earth themselves endure. So, so watch, some of you I know will go to, have gone to seminary, and you learn things there. You don't, it's not just in seminary, but you learn things there that basically seek to undermine your faith and confidence in the scriptures. Don't let it happen to you. Come back here to Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. See what Jesus says. Till heaven and earth pass away. And I, listen, I've heard the arguments, I've read the books, I, I, and I'm more impressed by Matthew chapter 5, verse 18 than I am with any of that stuff. That's what Jesus believes, and I'm sticking with him. You sh until somebody else dies and gets back up of their own accord, I I'm sticking with Jesus. All right? And I would commend the very same approach to you. All right? So that's what Jesus is saying. He came to fulfill, far from doing away with any part of the Bible, he says, I come to do the exact opposite, actually, to fulfill them, to give the scriptures their fullest expression and meaning through my own life, my own death, my own resurrection, my own return, and my own glorious reign as the eternal promised and everlasting king of the entire world. That's what Jesus is about. All right, And, and he, he takes his view of the Bible, and then he draws out an implication of it. Because this is true about the Bible, he, he gets on to verse 19, and he says, therefore, therefore, whoever moves away from this strong conviction of the scriptures, whoever relaxes one of the least 
of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And to be honest, I don't know exactly everything that this means, and I, I won't take too much time on it, because it gets into all sorts of things. Is Jesus saying that there are levels of greatness in heaven? This person will be great. This person will be least. And some of you are just saying, I just want to get in. I'll take least. Whatever, whatever you say, you know, just let me get in. Um, I'll, I'll wave to the scribes and Pharisees on, on my way in. And some of you are content with that. Look, I don't know if that's what Jesus is saying or not. I'll, I'll be like the rest of you. I'll find out when we get there. What I do know is this. Jesus is addressing the attitude and the prevailing thought of the day regarding the scribes, that there was some special place or level of honor reserved for them in heaven that was above the common people. And Jesus is saying, no, there's no special place reserved for pastors or scribes or any of that kind of thing. No, look, whoever. See, verse 19, look at that again. Therefore, what do you see? Whoever. Down in the second part of it. But whoever does them and teaches them. So there's no distinction here. I may be standing up on some podium, whatever we call this thing today, but there's, we're all on level ground before, before God. There's no distinction. Not when it comes to this. So Jesus attacks this idea. He refutes it and says, no, no, no. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Here's, here's one way to think about that. Jesus is just reminding us of a very important truth. Our titles here on earth don't earn us anything in the kingdom of heaven. Nor does our lack of titles prevent us from receiving even God's highest approval. What matters more than any of that is how we respond to God's word and how we teach and lead others to respond to God's word. Do you see that? That's what God looks at. This is the one I will regard, he says in Isaiah 65 or 66, the one who trembles at my word. God speaks and you're moved. That's what God regards. That's the heart that God says I will honor. And all of that brings us back to verse 20. And my second question, not, not only do we now see who the scribes and Pharisees were, but what kind of righteousness did they have? Well, the best way to answer that is to actually start where we are and to keep going. Verse 21, 22, 23, 24. I won't read them all, but what you will notice is for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually takes this idea of the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, and he compares and contrasts it to the true righteousness that God requires of us if we're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So you'll actually see in chapter 5 alone six times where Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. It was said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, but I tell you. And you see that in verse 21, 27, 31, 33, 38, and 43. And then he gets into chapter 6, and he does the same thing. Hey, don't do what the scribes and the Pharisees do. They practice their spiritual disciplines of giving, praying, and fasting in this way to be seen and acknowledged by other people. But the true righteousness that, that is required for those who would enter into heaven doesn't have that motive. It, its audience is God and God alone. And he continues throughout chapter 7 and all of this. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount, really, he's just comparing this righteousness which the Pharisees and scribes have to the true righteousness that God requires. And in Psalm 15, actually do turn to this one, Psalm 15, verses 1 through 2, 
I want to show you that Jesus is not making up anything new. I'm only going to give you one example from the Old Testament. He's not coming up with some new teaching as he shows us this deeper level of righteousness that resides in the heart. But this is always what God has required of his people. Psalm chapter 15, verses 1 through 2. Maybe you just open to the middle of your Bible and you'll be close to the Psalms in there. Chapter 15, verses 1 to 2. O Lord, O Lord, David says, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly. See, there it is, your outward actions. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. Now watch this. And speaks truth in his heart. Do you see that? Speaks truth with, with the mouth or where? In his heart. Now, now watch this, Emily. Watch this, Lauren. This is important. Watch, watch this. Because here's what that means. When God, when God speaks to us about what is right and what we should do, it's not just, it's not just what we do outwardly, right? It's in the heart. So, so watch this. If you're like me and you're honest, you'll, you'll admit that you've done this before. And, and everyone else, how many times have you rehearsed a lie in your heart? When you, when you thought that you needed a good excuse because the truth wouldn't be enough to get you out of trouble. Tell me if I'm alone up here. Is that just me? And we've got some takers there, all right? Yeah, listen, listen. Here's what Jesus is getting after in the Sermon on the Mount. It's just what Chris DeRocco just said. All of us, if we're honest fall well beneath the bar of what God requires of us. That's really the answer to the third question I ask. Do we have this righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees when we are measured at the level of the heart? Are, does God look down and find us to be people who every time without fail always speak the truth in our heart? And if you fail at that one point of God's law, James says, then you fail at the whole thing. You are judged as a lawbreaker. You are found guilty before God. And his, his condemnation of you and his judgment of you would rightly fall upon you forever. And if you're honest, it doesn't matter what you call yourself, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, agnostic, atheist, it doesn't matter. You know that what I'm saying is true. You know that you have often spoken lies in your heart and done many other things that we'll see over the next couple of weeks. You, you've been guilty of so many things that, that fall short of even your own ideals, let alone God's pure and perfect standards. You don't need a religion to tell you that. And if you're honest, you'd be willing to admit right now Perhaps you wouldn't want to because you know the implications and you know where I'm going, but you'd be willing to admit right now that you fall miserably short of what God requires of you, that you do not have the righteousness that God requires, that you are like me without a passport. Your only hope is that someone who has authority to let you in will be merciful to you. scribes and the Pharisees, we see who they are. We see what their righteousness is like. We see that we don't have the righteousness that God requires of us. And I'm going to drive that point home with a couple of places in the Bible. 
really one in particular, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. I just want you to see what the Apostle Paul says under the Holy Spirit, quoting actually what, what he finds in Psalm chapter 14. But in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, the Apostle Paul says this. As it is written, quoting from the law and the prophets, the Old Testament here, the Psalms in particular, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. What about you? What about me? What about Bob? <laughs> Listen. No, I, was, I was feeling encouraged by that laughter. I was about to pull up my Alicia Keys and sing no one, but I'll spare you. I'll spare you because I, I sang at you last week and it didn't go over so well. I heard the recording. Uh, but listen, some of y'all are laughing. I'd like to record you and see how you do with that. We all fall short, the Bible says. And, and this is one of the things that really has to sink in before anyone can come to God and receive. And we're getting into the last part. How do we, let's say we find ourselves honest and admitting that we fall short of what God requires, how then do we come to have this righteousness that God requires of us if we're going to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, here's, here's the good news. This is where it gets really good. God actually has been merciful to us, and he's provided a way for you and I to actually come to possess this righteousness. Let's read the Bible. I just want the Bible to speak here to show you what God says about this in the scriptures. In Romans chapter 3, as we get through verse 10, verse 12, look with me really quickly at verse 19 and 20. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Because what Paul was saying there was found in the Hebrew Scriptures, in their Old Testament, in their Bible. And so they had a special revelation from God in the Scriptures that some, certain people in certain parts of the world didn't have, right? And, and what he says now here is, now you Jews probably think you're better than all those other people and that on your own merit and on the basis of your own moral record, you qualify for something before God. But I want to point out here that whatever the law says, it says to you because you are the ones that have the law. He says, look, verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that not just other people's mouths, but every mouth may be stopped. The Christian's mouth is stopped before the perfect and pure standards of God. The Christian does not look at the Muslim or the Buddhist or the Hindu or the atheist or the agnostic and say, I have something over you. I, I am morally superior to you. No, the Christian doesn't do that. That's not his understanding or her understanding of, them, of himself or herself. No, my mouth is stopped. This is where I stop talking, and I hope God gives me good news. And wouldn't you believe it? That's exactly what he does. The whole world is stopped in, at the mouth and, and now is held accountable to God. Now watch what he says in verse 20. Not only do we not possess the righteousness that God demands from us, but we cannot get it through our own moral and religious efforts. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his, that is, God's sight. But rather, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, God's rules are not like some ladder or stairway that we use to climb up to get up into a place of God's approval and favor. They're much more like a mirror that shows us who we really are. That's what Jesus is saying. 
He's cutting through to the heart. He's exposing all of us and exposing our need. But now he comes and says, God loves you and will meet your need. Right at the point of your need where you lack righteousness, God has chosen to have mercy on you and to present you as the sons of Adam, as human beings with an offer he did not provide to the angels who sinned. Everyone wants to argue about doctrines and Calvinism and Arminianism, and some of you don't know what that means, but some of you do, and everyone wants to argue about limited atonement. And I, listen, I always tell people without getting into too much of it, atonement is limited. I don't, all right, listen, stick with me. Can you think of a class of created beings who sinned, were cast out of God's presence, and don't have any opportunity to, to benefit from what Christ did? Yeah, fallen angels. So atonement is limited. The only question, and you can debate this on your own. I won't tell you what I think this morning because it's not in our text. But the, the only thing that's left to discuss is, is it so limited that, that God has done the same with certain human beings? Now, I will tell you what I think. I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the case. I think what you find in the Bible is that God freely offers the gospel through willing messengers, and whoever so believes in him will have eternal life. So let's get about the business of freely offering the gospel to people so that they can come to faith, right? So there it is. Robert, we just did a whole, uh, a whole class. I can see the emails already. That's all right. Send the emails. That's all right. Don't believe anything I tell you unless I can show it to you in the Bible. So send the emails and the questions. All right. So there it is. Verse 20 leaves us in a very desperate place. We don't have the righteousness God demands of us. We cannot get it through our own moral and religious efforts. Verse 21, good news. Verse 21. I'm going to go all the way through verse 24 unless I get really happy and I keep going. So stick with me back there. Verse 21. But now, though you do not have righteousness that God demands, and though you cannot get it through your own efforts, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. You won't get it through keeping God's rules or following the law. This is a righteousness that is apart from law, and God has made it clear, manifested it, shown it to us, and we first see it in the law and the prophets back there in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Just like the one example I showed you in Psalm chapter 15, verses 1 through 2. There is a righteousness. Who shall sojourn in your tent? Lord, who shall come before you and dwell on your hill? Who may ascend, Psalm 24, to the hill of the Lord and, and come before him? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. How does that happen? Psalm 24 goes on to say, he will receive a blessing from God and righteousness from the God of his salvation. He will receive, Psalm 24, righteousness. Watch this, watch this. Verse, Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 24. There is a righteousness now apart from law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. Well, what about the person over here in this part of the world who grew up believing this? There is no, everybody say no, distinction. Did you read that? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why there's no distinction in how people are made righteous before God. 
he continues to say that. And they are now justified by his grace as a gift. They have to receive this gift of righteousness in Christ. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the one he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here, in the death of Christ, we live. That's why. That's, that's the thing that God put in my heart 15 years ago. That, that's the, if you want to know who I am, that's the most important thing about me. You can get to know some other things. My parents are from Jamaica. I've been there lots of times. It's a beautiful island. That's, I, I used to play professional soccer. That's not the thing that's important about me. Man, I've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. And so have so many people in this room. And you know what? You know what? That's what Jesus is extending to you this morning if you've never given your life to him. It's exactly what he's extending to you. He's saying, I find you to be without the righteousness that God demands from you. You cannot enter as you are. I find you inadequate and unable to produce this righteousness through your own best efforts. But I have good news for you. Jesus came and died in your place to pay the penalty for the life that you live. We say this all the time, don't we? He came and lived the life that we should have lived, and then he died to pay the price for the life that we chose to live instead. And now, here's what happens. I'll, I'll do one thing and I'll close. Romans chapter 8. Let me show you Romans chapter 8. What has happened now because of what God has done for us in Christ? And this is the offer God holds out to you this morning. If you've never come to Christ, I, I, I beg and plead that you would come to Christ this morning. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For or because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Well, what does that mean? Verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. See, the reason, the reason you can't take the law of God or all the rules of God and bring yourself to the place where you're free from condemnation is because there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with me. See, the law could not do something for us. Do you see that? What the law could not do, God has done. Do you see that? Now, why couldn't the law do it? Because it was weakened by the flesh. It was weakened in its ability to do this. It was rendered useless in its ability to do this because of us, because of a problem in us. And what we read here is that now God has found a way to do this for us. How? by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, or as a sin offering. And now he has condemned sin in the flesh. You see, on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Jesus hangs there on the cross and condemns the sin that would make you and I condemnable before God. That would make you and me worthy of condemnation before God. He puts all of that sin on himself and he takes the wrath of God in our place and now watch what happens. Look at verse 4. Look, look at that. He does all of this in order that the righteous... 
requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now Jesus begins to fulfill by his Spirit that very righteous requirement in us. He declares us righteous because we believed in him, and he begins to fulfill and work that righteousness in us by his Spirit. Here's the best news of all. Absolutely made me jump and shout when I first saw this. The law was unable to do this. You couldn't just give me God's rules and say, give it your best shot. It was unable to bring me to the place where I was righteous before God's sight because there was something wrong with me. It was weakened by the flesh. But what God, or rather what the law could not do for me, God did find a way to do through Jesus. Do you see that? Here's what that means. Once God does this for you, you need to know and understand and believe that he has done it for you in a way that can never be weakened or undone by you. That was why the law could not make you righteous. Because it was weakened by the flesh. So if God did what the law couldn't do, and the reason the law couldn't do it is because it was weakened by the flesh, then that means that what God has done cannot be weakened by the flesh. Somebody, somebody's got to get this. Now I'm talking about eternal security. I'm just throwing them out. This is why, at the end of the day, if a tree falls on your house, it's, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Because you stand now righteous before God through faith in Christ. He's using you in the world as salt and light. In Jesus' eyes, you're not just part of the problem anymore. You're also part of his solution. And he has sent you out there to be merciful to those who are desperately in need of his mercy and to show them what you just saw this morning. Let's pray and ask Jesus to keep us grounded in his word and speaking this truth in love to other people. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you so much for what you show us in your word. Help us to remember that, that our passport is righteousness and that Christ has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption that Jesus now is our righteousness. We don't have to try to stack up our good deeds against our bad deeds and hope they cancel the bad deeds out and what we have left is good enough. No, Christ is our righteousness. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, we cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Take a couple of minutes to think about what you just heard. Um, and I do beg and plead, if you've never given your life to Christ, please, I don't know when you'll have this moment of clarity again, or if you'll have it, please, please give your life to Christ this morning.